0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to us afresh this morning by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. For the past 33 years from the day I started seminary, I have had one particular fear in ministry above all others. It's a fear that lurks at my door each week and a fear that I have to take to God on a very regular basis. It's my thorn in the flesh, so to speak. Here's what it is. I'm afraid of not knowing what to say. And some of you may be thinking, surely not, that's ridiculous. You speak, you preach, you write all the time. And I imagine most of you know me as a reasonably articulate extrovert. Others, perhaps less charitably, might say, he loves the sound of his own voice. And would be incredulous that he, who used to get paid to argue when he was a trial lawyer, could even think such a thing. What then? am I talking about? Well, uh, God is not fooled by my British accent or my ability to think on my feet. My fear is simply this. When I step into this pulpit, will I be saying what God wants me to say? And I've learned uh, from sharing with other clergy that I'm not alone in this fear. And it seems from our Old Testament reading this morning that the prophet Jeremiah had a similar problem. I appointed you, says the Lord, a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah responds, oh God, truly, I do not know how to speak for I am only a boy. And God says, oh, that's okay, you'll be just fine. I understand, don't worry about a thing. No, God says, cut it out stop your whining and do as you're told. Or to quote the text a little more precisely, uh, do not say, I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I shall send you, and you shall speak whatever whatever I command you. Jeremiah's concerns about his own inadequacies may have been perfectly valid. God didn't contradict them, but they were not the point. My own fears are real and frustratingly pervasive, but the proper response when God calls you is not, oh, I'm not up to it, but where am I posted? What would you have me do? And God, knowing Jeremiah's anxieties and inexperience, first speaks words of comfort to him. Do not be afraid. Likewise, God says to me, when I am afraid, and he says to you who fear, you who are inexperienced, you who still wonder how God could possibly use you for anything at all, do not be afraid. God calls people like Jeremiah, or me, or you, to do his work, speak his words, and love others, even as he's loved us. God calls the people at ascension. Our teachers, our doctors, our stay at home parents, those at school, and each of us who would call Jesus Lord. God says, I've called you by name. You are mine. Follow me. Love God and love other people. Don't be afraid. Speak the words that I will give you to do the work that I have called you to. And so to each of us, God says, do not be afraid. For I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord." Indeed remarkable though it may sound, God has had plans for our lives since before we were born. As our Old Testament reading began, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah's calling was a calling that had significance in the eternal purposes of God. God formed Jeremiah just as he formed and is forming us. Even before we were born, God had a plan in mind for each of us. After the reminder of the call, the injunction not to make excuses, and the command not to be afraid, Jeremiah experienced an extraordinary thing. Verse nine, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth and the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. When you are afraid of those to whom you are sent, when you are afraid at school or work, in the hospital, at home, that you will have nothing to say or that you are just a boy or just a girl, remember those words of God and ask him to touch you afresh by his spirit, that he may put his words in your mouth. Of course, no one spoke God's word with more grace and truth, more clarity and love than Jesus himself. We see that throughout his ministry and especially in our gospel reading this morning. The reading takes up from where we left off last week. Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth. He's just read from uh, the prophet Isaiah, those powerful words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And with all eyes on him, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Or as Kevin explained last week, Jesus was saying, these words are about me. The scene was electrifying. The good news of the gospel is this, no matter our failings, our shortfalls, no matter our successes or achievements, no matter how poor or blind or lame we may be, physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, Jesus brings us hope. And St. Luke tells us all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. At least that is until Jesus challenged them beyond their comfort zones. Jesus went on to tell them the truth about God and the truth about themselves, and they did not like it. Indeed, when they heard what he went on to say, Luke tells us, verse 28, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. That's a very strong statement, and more than a statement because they got up, drove him out of town, fully intending to murder him. On Monday this past week I received a text message from a parishioner and with the sender's permission I'd like to read it to you. Jonathan, Father Kevin opined that next Sunday you would be preaching on the balance of Jesus' interaction with the home folks in Nazareth. If that is in fact accurate, may I be so bold as to inquire after your conclusion about what accounts for the great reversal that Luke narrates? Why do the home folks go from nudging each other and commenting on how well Mary and Joe's boy is doing, verse 22, to wanting to murder him, verse 29. He goes on to say, see, this is part of the curse of being rector of ascension. Parishioners feel entitled to comment on sermons even before you give them. (laughs) And you wonder why fear lurks at my door. So how did they go from all speaking well of of him to wanting to kill him? Well, it seems clear that so long as Jesus was telling them what they wanted to hear, good news about God's love and healing and grace for them, they were delighted. But as soon as he told them that God was and always had been just as concerned for others, even their enemies, They were furious. Nazareth was a small village, very parochial and likely fiercely nationalistic. Theological scholar and friend of ascension, the late Ken Bailey, after whom he and his wife Ethel were naming our new parish hall, explains in his wonderful book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, that Nazareth was known to have remained an all Jewish town until the fourth century. And he, uh, Ken Bailey, describes Nazareth as a settler town. The people in the synagogue that day, no doubt had a very strong and clear sense of who they were, their identity. And Jesus' words challenged them profoundly. Jesus told the folks there that God had always been concerned for the poor, the lost, the broken, the weak, and those who were far off, regardless of whether they were Jewish or not. To illustrate this, he reminded them of how long ago in a time of famine, God had sent the prophet Elijah to a foreigner, to a woman, to a widow, a non-Jew, and of how God had healed another foreigner of leprosy. Verse 27, there were also lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, except Naaman. Naaman was an Arab soldier from Syria, not a Jewish soldier from Jerusalem. The Bible tells us time and time again, that God shows no partiality. The gospel is for the bad guys and the good guys. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for Jews and Muslims and Christians for atheists and agnostics. He is the way, the truth, and the life for all. Try saying that in the public arena and you can land yourself in a lot of trouble. You might have good reason to be afraid of proclaiming God's grace and love, but let that not keep us silent. The gospel of Jesus his love for the world his passion for justice are not private matters for nice people the truth about god is public truth for all people truth is still a thing it's real it's not whatever you think it is or i think it is there is an objective reality to truth and if we want to know what truth is we look to god and we look to his son jesus christ And that is a scandal and a stumbling block to some people today. It frankly always has been. The good news of God is dynamite. It is powerful, life-giving, transformational. And as I say to some, it's downright offensive. But just as God called Jeremiah, so too does he call every follower of Jesus. And just as God said to Jeremiah, today I have appointed you. And Jesus said in Nazareth, today this is fulfilled in him. So for us, we can say today, this 30th day of January 2022, God is calling you. And whatever your particular calling, whatever your vocation, whatever your gifting, there is one overarching task that he has given for and called out for each of us. And that is to love, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a task that affects how you worship, how you live, how you play, how you work. Indeed, it affects every single part of our lives. There are two things that every Christian is called to. First, to love God and our neighbor. Jesus said that sums up the whole of the Ten Commandments. And second, to tell other people about the saving love of God. The first of these we call the Great Commandment and the second, the Great Commission. And if we are going to be able to fulfill this calling to tell others about Jesus, We need one thing more than anything else, we need love. I wonder why did the people in the synagogue get so mad at Jesus? I believe ultimately it was because they didn't love the people that weren't like them, because they wanted to be special and different and keep God's love for themselves. Where does this connect with you? I think it's possible, it's tempting, it happens sometimes that like the folks at the synagogue in Nazareth, we can also have a tendency either to be parochial or nationalistic or simply arrogant. After all, we we belong to Church of the Ascension. We're part of a wider church that knows its identity and is not wavering in its truths about the gospel. That may be true, and yet, God have mercy on us and challenge us to the core if we start for one moment to think that we are better than others. Do we think we're better? than Episcopalians or Catholics or Baptists or the ever-increasing proportion of our neighbors who profess no Christian faith at all. Do we think that God loves us more than those who don't share a biblical sexual ethic or view of marriage that we hold? Our God is not merely the God of orthodox Bible-believing Anglicans. He is the Lord of all, and he is the God of the broken, a God who loves those who know that they are broken and those who think they're not. He is the God who pours himself out for all whom he has created, and a God who calls us to extend his love to others, to the refugee, to the weak, to the downtrodden. This kind of love, as Jeremiah was charged with, is willing to pluck up and pull down all that is not of God, first in our own lives, then within the church, and maybe beyond. But God's love is also about building and planting. And just as we have been loved by God while we were far off, while we were proud and arrogant and thinking that we didn't need Him so also are we to love others, those who are not like us, even those who hurt us or annoy us, and those whom we'd rather keep away from. Will you demonstrate the love of Jesus, even when it's not popular, even when it's frowned upon, even when your motives may be called into question? And to you who are passionate in your political viewpoints, imagine, will you, for a moment, Jesus telling a story about how God has been at work in the life of someone who holds completely opposite political persuasions to you. As I say these things, I wonder whose face comes into your mind. Is it a neighbor? Is it a work colleague? Is it someone at church? Is it a family member? The gospel is good news for that person. This week, will you pray for that one? If he or she is someone that you will encounter this week, pray that God will give you an opportunity to show love, to, to extend kindness and grace and hospitality. I pray that we will not get caught up in or seduced by the culture wars that so dominate our society. Rather, let us look for and take every opportunity to show that we love. Not just say that we do. Any fool can do that. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. Today is the day that he calls to you with his love for you. Today is the day that he calls you to extend that love to others. Now is the time for the captive power of sin to be broken. Now is the time for God's will to be done. So help us, Lord Jesus. Amen.